Hello and welcome to another special Big Finish podcast with me, Martin Montague. And this week it's all about sound design. Now some time ago this was asked for on the Big Finish forum, so if you don't like it, you know to blame. So what is sound design? What do we sound designers actually do? Well firstly we take the raw recordings from the studio and all the various takes of a scene. Well firstly we take all the raw recordings from the studio and all the different takes of a scene. Firstly, we take all the raw recordings from the studio and all the different takes of a scene. Firstly, we take all the raw recordings from the studio and all the different... You get the idea. And then we pick out the best takes. Of course, there are often useful little notes from the director to help us on our way. Don't use the third take, he sounds drunk again. But then we have to consider, where is this scene set? Is it outdoors? Is it indoors? If it's indoors, is it in a big room or a small room? Or if it is outdoors, what's the weather doing? Is it a nice sunny day? Or is it a typical summer's day? And what is the actual location? And what era is it set in? Is it the future? Those are the basics. My name's Jamie Robertson, and I'm one of the sound designers and music composers for Big Finish Productions. Excellent. Well done. Got there in the end. Now, <laughs> you've done uh, quite a lot of uh, Big Finish Productions. Is there anything that stands out in your mind as being a very unusual sound you've had to create, maybe uh, from an object, you know, an everyday object? Well, when I did the original Wirren, uh, Wirren Dawn, actually, I obviously I didn't want to just use any... Um, ring modulators or anything from the studio i wanted to use um adding some extra like watery effects when they talk so to get the right type of water effect i uh, ended up going around to various places and in the end i ended up in the urinals of a, to- a theater toilet so <laughs> you know because you know when the um what you call it trickles the um when the what the tanks all oh, the tanks yes yes trickle water down in the uh, urinal pots it's a bit disgusting, really. Isn't it? So let me go this right. You were in, <laughs> you were in a gent with a microphone, just standing around recording. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Not arrested. No, 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 no. Then I dropped the mic in there. <laughs> you dropped your microphone in the urinal. It sort of fell off, fell off the actual mic cable. Nice. I <laughs> know. Oh, uh, that's not really meant to go in the podcast, is it? I think we should do it different, actually. Too late Sorry. for that. We're carrying on. <laughs> but that, that actually is one of the weirdest things I've ever actually done. So, uh, uh, sounds that's create. So, it's not really a Foley sound as such, do you know what I mean? It's more just to balance out the voices of the Wirren, um, rather than using like a flange effect or anything to give that watery effect. And every time they spoke, um, it sort of um, re- opened up a gate, noise gate, which would allow the water recording effect to come through underneath them. Wirren! 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 The time approaches. The way of nature as it used to be. The wise one. He is leaving. Leaving these. The female. For us. I'm Andy Hardwick, and at the moment I'm doing sound design and uh, music for Big Finish Doctor Who. You have betrayed me! No, stop. You're tearing me apart. You shall die.
I'd say the oddest thing, um, apart from mutilating joints of meat, which is something we did a while ago uh, for a production called The Holy Terror, um, but I said the oddest thing we've ever done is filled a rubber glove, a washing-up glove, with custard and um, swelched it around and, and, and made some horrible sort of internal organ-type popping sounds with it. Um, and that, that crops up all the time, actually, because it's, it's brilliant for when... Uh, if somebody gets shot in the head or something like that, that always seems to come into play. So anything gory, basically, which involves blood and internal organs. It was a, a glove that we filled with custard. I was reading somewhere along similar lines, someone made themselves... Uh, I think it was a cottage pie, a big, deep cottage pie. Oh, yeah. And then waited for it to go cold and then put their fingers in it for squelchy sound. I think that was for an autopsy scene for rummaging around inside a body. Really? Good grief. No, we didn't, we didn't go as far as that. We mutilated a chicken, a roast chicken, um, and then we ate it afterwards. But, I mean, that's just out of pure desperation for food, really. But um, I, I don't think I've gone as far as <laughs> doing anything with a cottage pie, but there you go. <laughs> The one I'm working on at the moment is the um, Asidon adventure. I think, interestingly enough, uh, that something I have done this morning did involve the custard glove, which was when Leela bites one of the characters, a crow, and um, she comments afterwards after she's not after she stopped biting him how disgusting he tastes, and uh, kind of just as a sort of slobbering noise. And the custard glove was involved in that bit. Now you mentioned the custard glove to me five years ago I really think. Is it the same globe with the same custard in? yeah i mean oh god i mean this is one that we did uh back in good grief 2001 when we were making the holy terror um so yes the custard glove has been a recurring sound effect i mean it's not the same glove obviously it's recording of the glove we did have to throw the glove away in the end that's what i was wondering about because it'd be a bit rank by now yeah i mean it was getting a bit rancid and it got to the point where um you come into the studio in the morning and you'd realized it had actually moved across the floor by itself <laughs> and we realized that was probably a good time to have it disposed of um so we, we got rid of it at that point we, we disposed of it humanely but it was getting a bit dangerous um so yes we just recorded about half an hour of us just squashing this thing around and um Several different types of squelching and squirting have come into uh, many uses over the years. I've got another one, actually, Martin. Go on, then. What, what's your other one about? Uh, a particular sound created all the way back to Dalek, Dalek Empire, actually. I've told people about this before. Um, but I had to drag a Dalek down the street. <laughs> so what I'd done is I'd got an old computer case... And there's me dragging it down this street and people were looking, what on earth is he doing? He must have had a bad time with that computer or something. You know, it's me dragging a computer tower case down the street just to get the dragon sound of the metal. I know it's when Cade sort of um, drags a Dalek around and um, pulls out its... Um, Ooh. <laughs> you know, you know, it's gun and that. Oh, oh right. and that's another thing that I've used quite a lot, actually. Um, uh, the sound of the gun pulling out was actually about three or four different um, effects put together. The first one being, you know when you go to um, like pubs or cinemas or anywhere, whenever they use their um, drinks machines to pour out your drink? Yes. Yeah? If you listen, you'll always hear, like a, it's like a funny, come from like the back of the kitchen or somewhere. How does it go? It, oh, it's like a... Sort of sound. I know the noise. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's like a sort of it's a compressor, I think, isn't it? For and it's the gas going through the water, putting it into the coke or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Or orange, or whatever, to make it fizzy. And um, I thought that's a perfect sound. So I had that sound layered in with 
the actual sound of the gun being pulled out and everything was actually a, a shower, metal shower. You know, if you hold to do your shower, the, the actual nozzle and all the pipe and everything, um, dragging over the side of uh, a radiator, if I remember rightly, to create that metal cracking on metal sort of sound. But but yeah, I've actually used the sound of the Coke machines, uh, you know, the, ch- the chiller machines and all that uh, being used quite a lot in things actually piercing of stuff and piercing of the shell of a dike and uh even the ships change the change the effect to make it like like the metal sort of being ripped open sort of thing you've got the air compression going out of a ship it's funny the the everyday objects you've got in the house that you can use for various things like uh, parts of the fridge freezer were used when i sank the titanic and the, the latest sherlock holmes I mean, there's loads of stuff we have to obviously create a foley for all the um, uh, what do you call it? All the don't you dare! <laughs> Sorry, the dog's kissing me. Look, what you get up to in your yeah. own time is nothing to do with me. Oh, it's dad. fine. She's just started to- giving me like massive kisses in the face, and that. So, um, what was the question? <laughs> I can't remember. Can we it's start so that again? Ago. Sorry. Hello, my name is Matthew Cochran, and I'm an occasional sound designer for Big Finish Productions. In the Bernice Summerfield story, The End of the World, there's a scene set in a spaceport, and it had to sound busy, so I cast around for things to use as spaceship noises, and ended up using processed versions of a fridge. And a kettle. Jason's ship itself was the fridge with a kettle, and an electric razor on top of that as well. It sounds ridiculous on its own, but uh, it worked in the context of the scene. I tell you what, I did manage to get over the winter, and that was in, uh, in one particular year. Um, I can't remember, I've used it in a few things, and I kind of like it. I've seen it in Hollywood films before. You know, the wheelie bins when they seal up in the, in like the ice cold winters. You go to open your wheelie bin, it's that crunching sound. Yeah, yeah. As it opens, I love that sound, and I've used I've I've used that in some some stuff in the past, uh, and like you know, like an old vault opening up. It's like the crunchiness of it, like where all the dirt and everything's around it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you said about um, everyday stuff in the house, cornflakes are very good for um, crunching rocks and that. I learned that one off of Simon Robinson. Oh. <laughs> yeah, close to the mass sort of, you know, so um, that creates that sort of rough edge effect. Let's put that to the test. Here it goes. a long time ago. What? It looks like a telephone box, but it isn't what you think. Hi, my name is Simon Robinson. I'm currently doing the sound design and music for Doctor Who, The Lost Stories, Power Play. Doctor, are you in there? Vic. Doctor, Jamie. What are you? They can't be far. I think um, sometimes the most difficult things in sound design are keeping everyday sound effects consistent. Say you get um, someone jumping on a motorbike, 
starting it up, revving it, uh, accelerating away, jumping over a small stone wall onto a muddy field, and then they have to, you have to depict them driving across this muddy field with all the lumps and bumps that may occur along the way, and then back onto a gravel road and accelerating along that gravel road before they skid to a halt. It can be very difficult to uh, get the engine noises to be consistent. And if you do have a friend, say, with a motorbike, are you going to be able to spend half a day, because that's what it's going to take you eventually, uh, to record the motorbike out on location and get a, a decent recording of the the engine at different rev cycles. Uh, you have to weigh all this up, because this effect may only be used in one or two scenes at most and if you've got 80 scenes you can't really afford to spend a day recording a motorbike so your best bet is to patch things up out of different samples and try tuning them so they sound as similar to each other as possible but this too can be very time consuming I seem so it then I hope so now for the difficult bit. If, on the other hand, you're asked to create the sound of a vast interstellar starfish eating a pleasure cruiser, this is relatively simple because nobody knows what that sounds like. So as long as you put plenty of crunching, squishing and screaming of the passengers on, on it, uh, you'll get away with it. The Piscon showed no sign of releasing the Doctor. So I grabbed a weapon from a pile of broken dummies and launched myself stupidly right into the middle of things, bashing it over the head with a plastic leg. We've talked about creating individual sounds so far, but what has been the hardest project to work on in terms of overall sound design? Perry and the Piscan Paradox is still probably one of the highest challenging um Doctor Who, well, definitely, it's definitely the most challenging companion chronicle now, uh, because you had certain scenes happening, and then on disc two, you've got scenes happening around the scenes you had on disc one, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so it had to be done in such an order to make things all, all the continuity fit and everything. And in some scenes, you can hear the background of the other scene playing off. It was a right nightmare working out which order to do stuff in. And even the music, actually, as well. The music was done the same. You hear certain little themes playing in one scene, which you then hear later on in another scene, which is to do with the other scene. It's really confusing. It's better if you hear it, so, um, to explain what what I'm talking about. Because a lot of people were thinking, what on earth is he on about? (laughs) Then I see my young self rush in. It was the girl I saw. My God! What was I wearing? Heels with cut-off shorts? With a leotard? I look like I've been dressed by a committee formed on an internet chat room. Where is he? Where's the doctor? If you don't get out of here right now, Pousebacken, you and the rest of your lynch mob are going to get turned into strawberry jam. Don't play games, girl. Believe it or not, one of the most difficult things I think I've ever done um, was on uh, The Beast of Orlock, um, which was one of the Eighth Doctor season. I think it was part of season three. Um, and The Beast of Orlock himself, who was a, a, a golem, I think that's the correct, correct way of saying it, did quite a lot of moving around. And um, 
but it the moving around which i think was a, a, a sort of a load of effects made from um, paving slabs and all that kind of thing so i think that he's supposed to be about weigh about four tons and he's made from rock um but it didn't seem to work unless there was some kind of vocalization vocalization going on with it um so that there was some kind of vocal thing to go along with every move he made it just it didn't seem to make any sense without it and I think there was one scene, one of the final scenes with that golem, um, which was probably about a minute long. And I think it took me two days to get it. So it actually sounded like something was happening. Um, so it didn't just sound like a load of random noises. And I think that's probably the, one of the most difficult things I've done for Big Finish, getting that to work. Because um, it was kind of like trying to give um, a creature a personality and, and make it say something. Um, and it was just some grunting and, and, and some noises from a paving slab. So that took a while to do. So I think that is the kind of thing that I found the most difficult. Do you have a preference for a type of story to do the sound design on? Um, historical, present day, or futuristic? I find uh, the most easiest ones to do are the futuristic ones. Because you can just make stuff up. Yeah, exactly. No yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, Nightmare Fair was quite hard because, um, and Perry actually, Perry and the Piscan, because um, I had to do a um, particular recording I needed for the roller coaster scene. And um, I was searching around for ages. I even approached, because we've got a lot of um, theme parks around near where I live, uh, over in the Norfolk area. And um, I approached to get some re- recorded. Re- you know, They've got old roller coasters and stuff. And uh, it was just arranging time with them, health and safety and all that. And it had to be done in such a time um, where they weren't open because they would have had all their modern-day music playing. And we had a fair, a fun fair nearby as well, and I needed general screaming of people on rides and stuff. And the same problem was happening there, where all their music was current, modern day hip hop and R and B and everything like that, and uh, and it just wouldn't exist back in the eighties. <laughs> That's what affects things as well, you know. You gotta um, get everything right, even down to stuff like um, certain stories. If they're if it's in like nineteen thirties, you gotta have the right type of car. If they're in a car or something, do you know what I mean? You couldn't have a modern nineteen eighties, well, you know, modern two thousand twelve now, isn't it? But you know, what I mean, you couldn't have a car from nineteen eighties. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't have a car from nineteen eighties in engine being used as a nineteen twenties Bentley or something. <laughs> I'm not very good with cars, but yeah, just stuff like that, really. I had a similar thing working on Sherlock Holmes. There were lots of scenes set outdoors, outside on Baker Street, uh, or set at uh, the the railway station, and you need some outdoor atmos, and and you can't just go and record a street now and say, well, this is the 1890s, because the cars are different. You've got the shops, you've got noises coming from the shops, you've got distant traffic that won't sound right. It's um, I found that one of the hardest things is doing outdoor sounds that fit the 1890s. In the morning, I obeyed Holmes's injunctions to the letter. A hansom was procured with such precautions as would prevent its being one which was placed ready for us, 
and I drove immediately after breakfast to the Lowther Arcade, through which I hurried at the top of my speed. A brougham was waiting with a very massive driver, wrapped in a dark cloak, who, the instant that I had stepped in, whipped up the horse and rattled off to Victoria Station. This is Victoria Station, as it sounds today. A far cry from how it would have sounded in Sherlock Holmes's time. On my alighting there, he turned the carriage and dashed away again without so much as a look in my direction. So far, all had gone admirably. My luggage was waiting for me, and I had no difficulty in finding the carriage which Holmes had indicated. The less so, as it was the only one in the train which was marked engaged. My only source of anxiety now was the non-appearance of Holmes. Particularly around here, on the East Coast, you've got um, obviously a lot of people think, oh yeah, it's quiet living near the seaside. It isn't actually. There's a lot, of, there's a lot more traffic noise than you think. And... Um, I'd have to go all the way over into the broads. <laughs> you just literally have to go in the middle of nowhere to to get 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 rid of that background sound of traffic. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So because it's there, it's always echoing around. Uh, a good time to go out, I found though, is when it's like um, foggy or there's snow. That deadens the sound. It does indeed. Yeah, so that's a good time to do it. And hopefully, the people listening to this, provided they've not turned off, <laughs> uh, they will realise the amount of thought that goes into these things. That's right. Yeah. I mean, um, <coughs> oh god, there the, the dogs going for it. <laughs> She's. I've used dog the same dog in uh, quite a few things as well. <laughs> now, if only I thought about that when I was doing Hound of the Baskervilles, because I had the devil's own game getting a decent dog noise for the hound. Look out! It's coming! A dreadful shape had sprung out upon us from the shadows. A hound, it was, an enormous coal-black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Now, my mate Dave has a dog the size of a small bear, and Max, the dog, is normally very vocal, so he seemed like the logical choice to provide some of the noises for the hellish hound that appears in the Hound of the Baskervilles. But, as the saying goes, never work with children or animals. Right. Now, in a minute, you're going to bark, like you always do, like that psycho, when the doorbell goes. Okay? Good dog. That's the uh, Sherlock Holmes story that was never told. For the final sound effect of the hound, I ended up using a mixture of noises, an Alsatian, a mountain lion and a coyote to name but three. These were then all mixed together and treated through a number of processes such as chorus and pitch shifting and compression, generally just to make it sound a little more demonic. A dreadful shape had sprung out upon us from the shadows. A hound, it was. An enormous, coal-black hound. 
but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire burst from its open mouth. Its eyes glowed with a smoldering glare. Its muzzle and hackles were outlined in flickering flame. Never in the delirious dream of a disordered brain could anything more savage, more appalling, more hellish be conceived than that dark form and savage face which broke upon us out of the wall of fog. How did you get into this uh, sound design malarkey in the first place? Um, well, kind of by accident in terms of uh, a friend of mine um, did some of the music scores for some of the very early Big Finish uh, productions, a guy called Russell Stone, and he's been a good friend of mine for years and years and years and years. And he came into our studio um, to master his music recording. And uh, after a few conversations and doing a few of those, uh, Gary Russell uh, phoned me up out of the blue and said, oh, you know, would you like to try doing doing one of these productions sound design wise? And um, we just said yes, because we're freelance. And if anybody offers us work, we said yes to it. And we got into it doing that, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And Gareth Jenkins, who was my partner at the studio at the time, business partner, um was a bit was was an old doctor who fan anyway he was so so he was quite excited about it and we actually had uh, a separate pre- post-production room built at the studio that we had um so it was an ideal thing to start doing there so we got into it through that really and uh and it just sort of spiraled from there um because the the studio the ers the studio that we were operating was 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 operating recording bands and doing remixes and that kind of thing but at the same time doctor who was getting done upstairs so it was all quite quite cool in that sense it seems the recital is at an end doctor there's no one here let me see only one door the one we came in only two windows both shut and below them virgin snow untrampled by any shy pianist I suppose it could have gone up towards the roof somehow. You don't believe that? You're right. You mean... Yes, definitely the beginning of a poltergeist manifestation. Excellent. The first thing I did was Winter for the Adept, um, and I did the sound design on that one, and uh, Russell Stone did the music for it, so that's the first thing we did. Um, and that seemed to go down quite well. We seemed to do, do an, ex- an acceptable job on it. Because you had quite a lot to do in that, didn't you? Because you had Winter for the Adept, you've got a snowy scene, so you've got footsteps in snow, uh, you've got a scene where uh, a piano goes flying across a roof. That, yeah, well, well remembered, because I've forgotten this. Um, yes, it does, yeah, there was an awful lot of that going on, because there was the was a was poltergeist activity going on all the time um so you'd do a scene where people were downstairs chatting away then all of a sudden the piano would start slamming around upstairs doctor look out extraordinary did you see that yes i think we should get back to peril and allison doctor shifted the piano across the room as if it was a toy so that was quite good because we we I mean we actually went and, and recorded uh, I think it was round at Gara's parents' house banging their piano about to actually get realistic sounds of the piano thing against the wall and that kind of thing and I think at one point the piano comes flying down the stairs as well. Did you throw the, their piano down the stairs then? No, because it was already downstairs. You see, otherwise we would have done. Um, but it was just the hassle of getting it upstairs to just to throw it back down again, which was, was the only thing that stopped us doing it. I think. Um, so uh, so yes, yeah, so, so that was a lot of fun if I remember rightly because it was the first thing we did as well so it was completely unknown quantity it's coming doctor what is it nothing to worry about Alison we are merely being pursued by a piano by a what a piano good job it isn't a grand <gasps> is the tea ready the what the tea yes please pour a cup now it should have had ample time to brew I think that you know me well enough Watson to understand that I am by no means a nervous man 
At the same time, it is stupidity rather than courage to refuse to recognize danger when it is close upon you. Might I trouble you for a match? No, of course. Now, the problem you sometimes get is that some things don't sound like they they should, or you yeah, kind of have to, I don't know, manipulate uh, how things sound, like um, just trying to make a box of matches sound like you imagine a box of matches to sound. The first box I picked up didn't have very many matches in and didn't make much of a noise, and the second one was too full. So now I'm just experimenting with boxes half full, quarter full, three quarters full, till I get the sort of rattly matchbox sort of sound, really, that I want. I'm just trying to put them back in the box and also making sure they lie so they, they shake uh, when I pick them up. I think that you know me well enough, Watson, to understand that I am by no means a nervous man. At the same time, it is stupidity rather than courage to refuse to recognise danger when it is close upon you. Might I trouble you for a match? No, of course. Now, have you ever had an instance where you've needed to record um, a real thing and you've got the recording back, listen back to it, and you found that it doesn't actually sound like the thing that you've recorded and you've had to tweak it one way or the other. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that um, I think I worked out after the first couple of these things that we did is that it's very, very rare that the sound effects, the real sound effects, actually sound like what people think they sound like, if you see what I mean. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think of examples of that, but I'm not really with it today. But um, it was fairly obvious that you go to an awful lot of trouble to record things, something that sounds realistic, but it just doesn't sound like the sound that people think they normally hear when when that kind of thing happens um so yes i mean that's kind of after a while you suddenly realize that 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 um footsteps recorded in, in the way that they they would normally be you would hear them in real life don't really work at all you know and 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 sometimes actually the sound that people are used to hearing when they watch a movie or hear a radio play or, or a television program are normally sounds that have been recorded in in a foley studio you know obviously really well but i think that's what people have got over the years they've got got used to hearing those sounds i think a, a good example of that is in films when someone gets punched yes punched yeah if you punch someone in the face it doesn't sound like it does in say indiana jones no it doesn't and i mean we spent ages experimenting with that i mean that classic hollywood punch sound i've never known exactly what it what that is what so how you create that um, but we tried everything with beating up meat and all sorts of stuff and it just doesn't sound right at all it's one of those things that varies from film to film in the indiana jones films um someone being punched in the face was made by um slapping an old leather jacket onto the, the bonnet of an old fire engine and and that was mixed with sounds of overly ripe fruit that had been splattered onto concrete. And then um, in the um, Ninja Turtle um, film and TV series, I think, it was the um, sound of grating cheese and wet pillow noises. I think that the furthest we went with it was, was taking a baseball bat and, and, and beating up a, a joint of meat. Um, and that was really, really disappointing. Um, because it didn't sound any good at all, and it completely ruined the meat. So, um, yeah, it's it's. I'm glad somebody else has gone further in that kind of experiment. But yeah, I mean, it, it is often the case that that, that what you think is going to sound like the real thing, i.e., a recording of the real thing, just doesn't work at all, um, and it just sounds disappointing. On, on on you know, creatively, it just sounds disappointing. On the afternoon of the fourth, we set off together, with the intention of crossing the hills and spending the night at the hamlet of Rosenlau. 
We had strict injunctions, however, on no account to pass the falls of Reichenbach, which were about halfway up the hills, without making a small detour to see them. This is the waterfall sound effect I originally used to represent the Reichenbach Falls in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Final Problem. But it was decided that it needed to sound more thunderous and much more threatening. This was, after all, an important part of Conan Doyle's plot. The torrent, swollen by the melting snow, plunges into a tremendous abyss, from which the spray rolls up like the smoke from a burning house. The shaft into which the river hurls itself is an immense chasm, lined by glistening coal-black rock and narrowing into a creaming, boiling pit of incalculable depth, which brims over and shoots the stream onward over its jagged lip. Now, in order to achieve a more rumbly effect for the waterfall sequence, I'm going to take a leaf out of the book of Ben Burt. He's the man who is tackling the job of recreating the takeoff of the space shuttle for an IMAX film. And what he found was even recording the actual space shuttle at various locations, various distances, the final recording didn't sound as you'd imagine it would do. It didn't sound impressive enough. So what he did was he stuck a microphone out of the window of a moving car and the wind distorted the recording completely. So he took that sound and put it through a subwoofer and then took all the high frequencies out of it and gave a bit of a boost to the bass. Then he mixed that with the actual sound of the space shuttle and what he got was a final piece of audio that sounded more like the real thing than the real thing did. So this rumble noise of the wind on the microphone that you can hear now was treated with compression and some EQ to remove any higher frequencies. And the actual waterfall sound effect was treated in a similar fashion. Then the two were mixed together and various mixes were tried out until the final result was one that sounded suitably impressive for Holmes's ultimate meeting with Moriarty. It was the sight of that alpine stock which turned me cold and sick. He had not gone to Rosenlaui then. One of the biggest things I've done um, with sound was actually, well, it's more wild tracks actually, wild tracks are where we have uh, extra voices and stuff in scenes and um, screaming, talking on bridges, whatever. And, uh, I used to work as a projectionist a few years ago and it was actually uh, for a non-Big Finish thing before I started working for Big Finish but I've used the sound in Big Finish as well now a lot and I needed loads of people screaming and uh, on a Saturday night after the, the ads and trailers were played on a film which stopped the film temporarily before the actual main film started and asked 400 people in the audience in this cinema if they could just do a load of screaming and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing I've ever asked people to do, do you know what I mean, with most people. So, And uh, and I've used that quite a lot, actually. Because that 
would be that would be really good because recording in the Big Finish studios, they normally have a maximum of six actors. That's right, yeah. yeah. And so it, it's normally a very a very small crowd screaming. That's it, yeah, that's it. And you could get the six, six actors to do a lot of screaming and then overlay it, but it's not quite the same as having a huge amount of people all doing it at once, is it? Mm, that's right, that's right, yeah. I mean, this is... You know, this, and it came out perfect, actually. These people had never done this sort of thing. They loved it, though, actually. They were laughing after, you know. And, um, no, I, that was quite a long time ago that was done. Maybe I need to do some more. Yeah, <laughs> go out and make more people scream. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, what do you do for your job? I make people scream. <laughs> right, thank you, bye. Yeah, ta-da. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this special sound design edition of the Big Finish podcast, Normal Service will resume next week. But having spent the last half hour or so talking about how we strive to get the right sounds for a scene, I'll leave you with a brief example of when it goes wrong. Now, this didn't make the final edit, and it occurred when I accidentally dropped the wrong sound effect into the mix I was working on. At that instant, Holmes sprang like a tiger onto the marksman's back and hurled him flat upon his face. He was up again in a moment, and with convulsive strength he seized Holmes by the throat. But I struck him on the head with the butt of my revolver, and he dropped again upon the floor. I just turned over the phone. Just turned the phone down. And me too, this end, yeah. I guess, first of all, can you say who you are and what you do? My name's Jamie, and I am a stripper. <laughs> so I'm going to need to sleep tonight. That's a, that's quite a, an horrific image. I'm joking. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, um, it's not going in the outtakes, is it? No, as if I do a thing like that. <laughs>